Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat Podcast. We are solution architects and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we dive deep, demystify technology and talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and Deep Tech Dives in topics of interest. Hello, my name is Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 74 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And joining myself today is developer advocate and all-round good guy, Gabe Hollenby. Hi, Shane. It's been ages since I've had you behind the mic joining our listeners. I had to look back through the archives. It was reInvent last year in your plush hotel to which we recorded. And I know you've been busy. I can't escape you on my social media feeds as the face of AWS, Gabe. <laughs> Man, has it been that long? This year's been really strange. I mean, sometimes it feels like time is moving super slowly. But then you say our last episode was nine months ago, and I feel like I have no idea where the time went. Tell me about it, like nine months. Okay, Gabe, look, it's a funny old time in which we find ourselves in, and it's interesting how people around the world are getting on with life. You know, it's allowed me to focus back in on technology and focus on my passions. Some pretty amazing projects on the go, one of which I can't wait to complete with those WS281 Um, LEDs. If you aren't familiar with WS281s, they are individual controllable RGB LEDs and I'm going to use them to illuminate my stairwell based on movement. Why? I think because I just can. What's news with you, Gabe? Sounds like a bright idea you have there, Shane. Sorry, I can't can't keep the puns. Uh, So look, I don't have any super cool home renovation projects like you, uh, but uh, I do have something exciting I can share, which is my wife and I are expecting another baby in January. That is awesome news. Now, have you already shortlisted an AWS service name for this one too, given your daughter's name, you know? Yes. For those of you who don't know, my daughter's name is Aurora. And well, we are compiling a shortlist of names. Uh, It's a boy this time, by the way, but none of them are as of yet AWS service names. But reInvent is fast approaching. So I guess who knows? Maybe we'll launch something new with a name that matches up. Stranger things have happened, my friend. Very true. Okay, so well, speaking of announcements and launches, fresh from our Edge special in our previous episode, we're going to pivot back to an updates episode today. So in this episode of Tech Chat, we're going to run through a raft of updates that have occurred in the last two months, that being July through to the end of August in 2020. Quickly, Gabe, let's do a lap of AWS news as there are so many updates I want to talk to you and our listeners about. Summit wise listeners, check the events page for updates on our global summit series. Some have been rescheduled, some have been canceled. So please check the events page as things do change quite frequently. Just search AWS events in your favorite search engine. The next virtual summit will be covering Japan on September 8th, which is combining what would normally be the Tokyo and Osaka summits. A Shanghai summit in China, which is what I believe will be our first in-person summit this year is scheduled on September 10th. Being the social media personality that you are, Gabe, I believe we have a builder's event coming up with a certain person maybe keynoting. Oh, yes. Actually, we just did that event yesterday, so you've missed it by a day. But yes, each quarter we run a day of talks aimed at more beginner-level audiences uh, called AWS Builders Online Series, uh, and we run that out of Singapore. Uh, Yesterday was our third quarter event, and indeed, I did provide a live keynote to kick the day off. Uh, covering basics of how you can keep workloads secure in the AWS cloud with our identity and access management, our key management service, and virtual private cloud you know, networking configs. 
Uh, all of yesterday's content, my keynote and two tracks of English sessions, plus tracks in Korean, Bahasa Indonesia, and Vietnamese are all already available for viewing on demand today. We'll put a link in the show notes on how you can find these sessions, or our listeners can just search for AWS Builders Online, or visit aws.amazon.com slash events slash builders dash online dash series, and find that big old watch on demand button. But hey, we're here to talk about updates, and uh, boy, are there a lot we want to cover. So in the words of an enthusiastic cartoon dog who loves to swim, yes, I have a toddler and we do watch a lot of a certain uh, show, let's dive in. Let's dive in. Okay, so region-wise, still at 24 with South Africa and Milan recently coming online. CloudFront, 217 edge locations, but we recently added a regional edge cache in the Europe island region. Regional edge caches are pretty neat, and it's a term that might be confusing to some of our listeners. Is it a region? Is it a cache? Can you unpack the term, Shane? Look, I think the easiest way to describe a REC or a regional edge cache is an intermediary caching layer between the edge location servicing the request and the origin. So look, as objects become less popular, individual pops as locations might remove those objects to make room for more popular content. So a regional edge cache has a larger cache than an individual pop, so objects remain in the cache longer at the nearest regional edge location. And this helps keep more of your content closer to your viewers, reducing the need for CloudFront to go back to the origin and thus, you know, overall improving performance for viewers. Okay, Gabe, let's get into the show as there are so many updates. We're going to have to skim over some, um, make listeners aware, but we will hone in on others. There are so many updates that have been able to group them in a few distinct categories. And the most popular category, well, at least by customer conversations and updates, has to be containers. And I want to talk about a new offering, Gabe, first up, and talk about ACK, all capitalized, and I'm not talking networking here. I acknowledge where you're going here. Uh, ACK being an acronym, acronym get it for aws controllers for kubernetes now many a show has been dedicated for containers and kubernetes so please go listen to them if you'd like to get up to speed but aws controllers for kubernetes or ack is a new tool that lets you define and use aws service resources directly from kubernetes Look, now that is a big change in thinking here because unlike ecs kubernetes is not natively integrated into aws being cloud agnostic Exactly. So with ACK, uh, I guess we should just call it ACK, you can leverage AWS services directly in your Kubernetes applications without needing to define resources outside of the cluster or run services that provide supporting capabilities like databases or message queues within the cluster. ACK is going to provide you with a seamless way to manage your application and its dependencies. ACK is in developer preview today and it supports Amazon S3, Amazon SNS, Amazon SQS, Amazon DynamoDB, and Amazon ECR and Amazon API Gateway. Awesome. Look, I'm not going to spend too many more cycles on this, but ACK is a collection of Kubernetes custom resource definitions, or CRDs, and controllers which work together to extend the Kubernetes API and create AWS resources on your cluster's behalf. ACK comprises a set of Kubernetes custom controllers, and each controller manages custom resources representing API resources of single AWS service APIs. So for example, the service controller for S3 manages custom resources that represent AWS S3 buckets, keys, etc. Now, if you're interested in ACK, take a look at the blog post, just put AWS ACK Kubernetes into your favorite search engine, to which you can find the link to the ACK GitHub repo. Now, when you think containers, Gabe, or at least when I think of them, I'm thinking upper stack in the OSI model, you know, layer seven, and that's the, you know, application layer. 
Containers typically are serving, you know, HTTP-based workloads such as APIs. Yeah, that, that's certainly a common use case for containers, Shane. But but of course, you know, there's also plenty of non-HTTP workloads that customers want to run on containers too. And we have a new update here that'll make those users happy as well. With this new update, you now have more choice than just using an application load balancer. Remember, that's layer 7 in the OSI model. You can now use a network load balancer, NLB, to distribute UDP traffic to container-based applications running on Amazon Elastic Kubernetes Service, or EKS. Network load balancers are fully managed load balancers, and they operate at the connection level, that's layer four. And they're capable of handling millions of requests at ultra low latency. So until now, you could use network load balancers on Amazon EKS, but only with the TCP protocol. With this new integration, you can run workloads such as DNS or IoT, real-time media, syslog also using UDP protocol, allowing high throughput at ultra low latency through the network load balancer. Yeah, the default for configuration on your load balancer is controlled by annotations that are added to the manifest for your service. By default, classic load balancers are used for load balancer type services. To use network load balancer instead, apply the following annotation to your service. So that's service.beta.kubernetes.io forward slash AWS hyphen load hyphen balancer hyphen type NLB. Another option or lever, as I like to say. So a few more to cover here, and I'll keep them to the headline overviews. So Fargate for EKS is now included in compute savings plans, which is a great win for customers given the adoption of Kubernetes and more so our managed offering EKS. Yeah, so just to refresh our listeners on savings plans, they're effectively the, the modern version of reserved instances, if you remember or ever used what those were. Savings plans give you a flexible pricing model that allows you to save money in exchange for making a commitment to a consistent amount of compute usage measured in dollars per hour for a one or a three year term. Now, these plans automatically apply to usage across Amazon Elastic Compute Cloud or EC2, AWS Lambda, AWS Elastic Container Service, ECS on AWS Fargate, and now Amazon ECAS on AWS Fargate as well. The date of this recording is late August of 2020, so keen-eyed listeners, saving plans will automatically apply to EKS on Fargate usage from August 1st, 2020. Back-of-the-hand savings here average around 40% versus on-demand usage, however, your mileage may vary. Sticking with our container theme, ECS, so Amazon Elastic Container Service, has launched the new ECS-optimized Inferentia Amy, which is a new Amazon Linux 2 based Amy for EC2 inf1 instances. This makes it easy for customers to run Inferentia based containers on ECS using an optimized Amy, which comes pre-baked with all the necessary AWS neuron packages. Now, Inferentia is something we covered at reInvent last year. Now, Gabe, it feels like only a few months, as I mentioned, to which I spoke to you about it. I know. Like I said, time feels funny sometimes, uh, especially living here in Singapore where we have no seasons. But hey, let's talk about Inferentia. So ML is made up of two distinct parts or, or steps, right? You've got training and inference. So training is when we create a machine learning model from data. And then the inference is the part where we use a trained machine learning model to make a prediction based on new data. And AWS Inferentia chips are custom-built silicon that deliver up to 30% higher throughput and up to 45% lower cost per inference than our EC2 G4 instances, which were already the lowest cost instance for machine learning inference available in the cloud. Yeah, and a real-world example here is our favorite AI assistant, Alexa. So every time a user speaks, the voice is being applied against the model. The faster you can perform inference, there are benefits here for everyone. 
We just mentioned Inferentia, and I really wasn't going to call this out, but it's now available in additional locations. You can now find EC2 Inf1 instances in US East Ohio, Europe, Frankfurt, Ireland, and Asia Pacific, Sydney, Tokyo regions. Inf1 instances are powered by the AWS Inferentia chips, which, like Gabe said, are custom designed by Amazon to provide customers you know, the lowest cost per inference in the cloud. And you know, it's gonna lower the barriers for everyday developers to start using machine learning at scale. So look, the summary of this update, if you're performing inference, take a good look at the Inf1 instances for your use cases. Not only will they be performant, but they're gonna be cost effective more so than say using a GPU to do this function. Yeah, and developers can deploy their machine learning models to Inf1 instances using the Neuron SDK, which is integrated with popular machine learning frameworks like TensorFlow, PyTorch, and MXNet. So it has a, a compiler, uh, runtime, and profiling tools to help you optimize the inference performance on AWS inferential chips. Now look, do we have any other container announcements you want to cover, Shane? Now, I think we're done with containers for today. Look, we aren't going to be able to cover everything. So if containers is your thing, bookmark the containers what's new blog at aws.amazon.com forward slash blogs forward slash containers. But yeah, let's continue with some more compute announcements. Now, Compute and EC2, let's talk about, Gabe, EC2 Launch V2 for our Windows instances. Yeah, it's a fun name, right? EC2 Launch V2 is a redesigned unified launch agent that unsurprisingly replaces version 1 for EC2 Windows instances. Now, this V2 simplifies the configuration of Windows instances and supplies AWS recommended configurations to your Windows instances, like local administrator username changes, support for increased user data input length, and agent auto updates. Yeah, and look, when I read about this game, well, the changes, I said, finally, you know, the ability to rename the administrator account is a godsend, you know, kind of a bit of a bugbear for me. You look back in the early days when I used to expose servers to the internet, don't judge me where, you know, we're talking early 2000s oh, yeah. here, um, you know, uh, change your RDP port and the local administrator username is one of the things you would do, you know, to prevent your machine from being owned. You know, we're talking about a layered approach as part of my build process. So what else can we do, Gabe, in this release? Oh, Shane, we can do so many things now. Uh, so you can set the computer name. There's a new setting. If you enable it, it'll let you set the computer name to IP dash and then the hex encoded version of the internal IP address of the host. You've got the ability to extend the boot volume. So this setting will dynamically extend disk zero and volume zero to include any unpartitioned space. This can be really useful when the instance is booted from a root device volume that has a custom size, for example. Yeah, and this can be super helpful for those long-lived machines, you know, that take on a barrage of Windows updates over time that, you know, fill the boot volume up. Yep. And uh, look, like you said, you can set the administrator account. So we have a setting here now that lets you set the username, of, hooray, and password attributes for the administrator account that's created on the local machine. Now, if this feature is not enabled, an admin account is not created on the system following sysprep. Uh, but you can provide a password in the admin password setting uh, if the admin password type is set to specify. Now, the password types, there are a few of them, and let me just quickly cover them. You can say random, and if you do that, then EC2 Launch will generate a password and encrypt it using the user's key. Uh, the system disables the setting after the instance is launched, so the password persists if the instance is rebooted or stopped and started. You've also got specify as an option, and that's what I mentioned before. That'll let you use the password that you specify in the admin password config. If the password doesn't meet system requirements, however, EC2 Launch will generate a random password instead. 
Uh, the password is stored in agentconfig.yaml as clear text, and it's deleted after sysprep sets the admin password. EC2 launch also encrypts the password using the user's key. You've also got the choice to pick do nothing. If you do that, EC2 launch uses the password you specify in an unattended.xml file. And if you don't specify a password in unattended.xml, the admin account is disabled. Look, you can also elect to uh, start the SSM service. Uh, so you can make that enabled following sysprep. Uh, you can optimize your ENA. That's your elastic network adapter, right? Correct. Uh, you've, uh, you can also choose to enable SSH. This is great, right? So now you can enable open SSH for later Windows versions, allowing remote systems admin. Yeah, what a cool feature. You know, it's good to see Windows embracing the SSH standard for remote administration in conjunction with RDP. So don't stress, RDP isn't going away. Amen, though. I agree. It's nice to be able to have that option to SSH uh, when you want to, when you just need, you know, a command line interface to get some work done. Uh, look, you've got a few more settings that I want to just cover quickly. You can enable jumbo frames. Uh, the jumbo frames can have unintended uh, effects on your network comms, so make sure you understand how they work. But that's an option for you now. Uh, you can also pick an option for prepare for imaging, and this will pick whether you want your EC2 instance to shut down with or without sysprep. Uh, and finally, my favorite one, of course, wallpaper. So now you can enable the display of selected instance details on the wallpaper, which is super helpful. That's just a nice thing that, to be able to turn on with one tick. Awesome. Got to love the wallpaper. Hey, just on the jumbo frame thing here, right? So if you increase the MTU size of your frames, you know, Gabe just mentioned, you know, it may impact system performance, but also think about things like, you know, if you're accessing these machines over a direct connect and, you know, what your telco will allow you, you know, to transfer, et cetera. So, you know, great feature just understands the ramifications of, you know, leveraging jumbo frames before you make those changes. Mm. Cool. So look, all of this can be done via the GUI or as Gabe mentioned, a YAML configuration file. So you can have this part of your info as code strategy, you know, and version control you're setting. Just Hooray. remember the part, yay. Just remember, you know, your password for the local admin, depending on your option that you've selected, could be stored in plain text and, you know, it will be removed after it's applied by the agent. But, you know, take care storing keys to the kingdom. Perhaps you can generate it on runtime, you know, SSM parameter store, perhaps. So. Next one here, Gabe, um, you know, we know how much of a supporter I am of this. I have, you know, full telco rack at home, but I just received about a month ago, a 1RU rack mount kit for my Raspberry Pi 4. I've got a PO hat on it and it does all the glue work in my house that I can't send out to the AWS cloud. I love my Pi 4. It's absolutely awesome. You know, Pi 4, Rock Pi and these other based, you know, um, Cortex, um, you know, Single board computers are awesome. So speaking of awesome, not an announcement, but we have more ARM-based instances in more AWS regions. Yeah. From August 20th, the EC2, M6G, C6G, and R6G instances are available in Asia Pacific, in Mumbai, Singapore, and Sydney regions. Of course, that G stands for the Graviton processors that we put in them. Now, we covered in earlier episodes of Tech Chat, like episode 72, the EC2, M6G, C6G, R6G instances, uh, they deliver up to 40% better price performance ratio over a lot of comparable x86-based instances for a broad spectrum of workloads like application servers, microservices, high-performance computing, CPU-based machine learning inference, electronic design automation, gaming, open source databases, and in-memory caches. Yeah, they can do lots of things. And look, listeners, don't just take our words here. You know, pop Graviton 2 into your favorite search engine and read mm -hmm. the reviews. 
And look, if it was my business and I could make use of an ARCH64 architecture, these are the instance types I would be picking. You know, on a price to performance ratio, they are unmatched. Yeah, you just need to make sure that your workloads uh, can run on them, right? Whatever software you want to run. And lots of open source software is already available to run on, on ARM. You just need to make sure that whatever you want to do, you can. And actually, a good call out is we, we also have guidance online of how to get your own software uh, compiled and optimized for Graviton chips as well. So uh, if you just do a search for that, uh, you should be able to find it in our documentation. Now, speaking of workloads, uh, Kubernetes is kind of popular. <laughs> and from uh, August 18th onwards, uh, EKS joins ECS, our Elastic Container Service, in providing support for ARM-based instances as well. So they were previously available on EKS as part of a public preview. But now with general availability, you can mix x86 and ARM-based EC2 instances within a cluster. And you can easily evaluate if your ARM-based applications are going to work in your existing environments. You can now run production workloads using ARM-based instances, including those ones I just mentioned, the recently launched M6G, C6G, and R6G instances. EC2 ARM-based instances are supported on new and existing clusters running Kubernetes version 1.15 and above, and can be deployed using EKS Managed Node Group, EKS CTL, CloudFormation, or the AWS CLI. Now remember, Kubernetes project is rapidly evolving with new features, design updates, bug fixes, etc. The community releases new Kubernetes minor versions such as 1.17 as generally available approximately every three months and each minor version is supported for approximately nine months after its first release. So we support from version 1.14 through to 1.17 today. Now unless your application requires a specific version of Kubernetes we recommend that you choose the latest available Kubernetes version and that you regularly proactively update yourself rather than having EKS do it automatically for you. Now social media Gabe alerted me to this next update and it wasn't you this time you know, <laughs> it was our chief blogger jeff Barr. so prepare your qubits because amazon bracket has gone ga yes now for those of you who are unfamiliar with it amazon bracket is our fully managed quantum computing service that helps researchers and developers like you get started with quantum computing technology and to accelerate research and discovery as well so Amazon Bracket provides a development environment that you can use to explore and build quantum algorithms yourself. You can test them on quantum circuit simulators. And then what's really cool is you can run them on several different popular quantum hardware platforms that are available. Covered in detail in a prior episode, but Gabe, let me ask you, as an evangelist, have you had a play with Bracket? I've not played with Bracket yet, but I do know that pricing-wise, there are no upfront changes, and you're only going to pay for the AWS resources you actually use. You'll be billed separately for each Amazon Bracket capability, including access to the quantum computing hardware and managed simulators that we offer. Cool. So look, there are many things that I'm trying to learn and do, as we all are, and I'm going to have to put this on my to-do list. It's pretty long. I wonder if there's a concept of Hello World. You know, Gabe, have you ever seen those t-shirts where it's like, there's no place like... 127001 right and people get that yep. there's no place like home like but home. that doesn't really that doesn't really translate to like ipv6 right like you know not many people know what that is i wonder what the hello world concept is for quantum computing is it hello yeah, world? I, don't, I don't know um maybe it is maybe it isn't there's a quantum computing joke for you uh you know and also the, that shirt the there's no place like 127.00.1 i always thought it should be like there's no place like like tilde or tilde slash because you know i always think of 127.00.1 as more like localhost and not uh not home so that's Got just the, the the unix nerd in me i feel like tilde slash would be would be a more appropriate home reference 
you might lose the Windows audience. But yeah, good call out. Okay, so look, keeping it real and applicable to the wider audience, not that quantum computing isn't real and applicable at this stage, we have a new EBS volume type. Now, typically, people would use general purpose SSD or GP2 for most workloads. And if you need that high IO throughput with low latency, you would use IO1. Yeah, this is actually super cool, right? So EBS has changed over time, our elastic block store. And uh, GP2 over the years has increased the ratio of IOPS per gigabyte uh, of SSD back storage several times. Uh, most recently, this happened in August of 2016. This ratio started out at 10 IOPS per gigabyte, and it has steadily grown to 50 IOPS per gigabyte. In other words, the bigger your EBS volume, the more IOPS it can be provisioned to deliver with a per volume upper bound of 64,000 IOPS. Now, this change in ratios has reduced storage costs by a factor of five for throughput-centric workloads. But this is so cool. Now we have released a new EBS storage type called IO2. Cool. So this is not replacing IO1, and it's not better than IO1, nor is it worse than IO1. It's just different and fills another use case. So mm -hmm. the IO2 volume type has two important benefits. Now, it's the same price as the existing IO1 volumes. So the benefits really are high durability. So the IO2 volumes are designed to deliver five nines of durability. So that's 99.999% durability, making them 2,000 times more reliable than, say, a commodity disk drive. Further, you know, reducing the possibility of storage volume failure and help improve the availability of your application. So IO1 and GP2, you know, if we're comparing here, have a lower SLA at three nines or 99.9%, .9%, which is a big difference. And the second benefit is more IOPS, you know, at 64,000 IOPS per volume. Now, hang on. Isn't that the same that we just said for IO1? What's the difference here? Glad you asked. So whilst the performance is the same, IO1 has one more ace up its sleeve that IO2 does not support multi-attach. Now, this is exclusive mm. to IO1 and allows IO1 volumes to allow a single volume to be concurrently attached to up to 16 AWS Nitro-based EC2 instances within the same availability zone. Each attached instance has full read-write permissions to the same shared volume. Now, for applications that manage storage consistently from multiple writers, multi-attach can make it easier to achieve that high application availability. Now, there's a matrix online comparing EBS storage types, but IO2 is perfect for high-performance, business-critical applications such as you know, SAP HANA, SQL Server, IBM DB2, and so on. Yeah, like you said, right, those cases where you're going to only need a single attach, you're going to have a single host writing to it. So that makes perfect sense. And I'm glad you pointed it out because I wasn't aware of that limitation. Uh, so these updates have so far have actually been pretty infra heavy. Why don't we move on and talk about some code updates? Oh, all right. Okay. Well, look, I'm going to start with something I've managed to use here, and that's Step Functions, one of my favorite AWS services. Me so too. quick 101. It is pretty awesome. So look, a quick 101 refresher. It's a serverless function orchestrator that makes it easy to sequence Lambda functions and multiple AWS services into business critical applications. You know, through its visual interface, you know, you create and run a series of checkpointed and event-driven workflows that maintain the application state. The output of one step acts as the input into the next step after that. And each step in your application executes in order as expected based on the defined business logic you create. Now, the update here is on the logic. It's been pretty good thus far, but this just makes it even better. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so this is an update I love too. With step functions, the uh, ASL or Amazon States language is a specification for a language that describes what you use to build your workflows. And now we have more operators. 
Yeah, and I must admit, I've only used some pretty basic condition logic, but I've seen some crazy state machines. But with this update, customers can use additional choice state operators, such as test for a null value and the existence of a variable, wildcarding, and variable to variable comparators. This new set of features allows global access to the context objects, dynamic timeouts, and result selection. You can also use inbuilt intrinsic functions such as string and array construction, string to JSON, and JSON to string. So Gabe, you know, speaking to a real developer here, what does this mean to you? Uh, there's some pretty exciting updates here with the new ASL uh, features for step functions. And I think what it really means is a lot of the work that you could have done with step functions before uh, is a lot simpler now. And some things are just possible now that weren't possible easily before. Uh, for example, just to call out a specific diving deep into your example with the choice state operators. So you used to only be able to compare uh, state from your state machine, which is what, you know, what step functions are. They execute a state machine. So every step has a state that's fed into it. You used to only be able to do these choice states, which is like a switch statement in programming, where you're comparing state values to hard-coded values uh, inside your, your state machine definition. But now you can actually compare values in your state to variable references instead that will we'll look up other values. So you can compare state values to other state values, for example. Huge. Also, those things like string and array construction or uh, JSON conversions, really, really helpful. It's just going to improve the lives of developers a lot. And if you haven't used step functions yet, I strongly encourage you to look at it for any of your orchestration needs. Now, uh, API Gateway, Shane, also has a few new enhancements like step functions uh, to just make things easier. You know, I read this and thought the same. You know, it's not like you couldn't do this before, but it was like, you know, as I like to say, you know, more glue in using Lambda or something, you know, in a proxy pass-through mode. And listeners, mm -hmm. remember the platform is constantly changing. You know, we just mentioned step functions, you know, now API Gateway. You know, just remember an architecture is not set and forget. You know, it's something that you should be revisiting from time to time as there may be, you know, means to optimize in terms of not just simplicity, but cost, performance, and reliability. So I digress, Gabe. Tell me more about these updates. Sure. So customers can now create Amazon API Gateway HTTP APIs that route requests to a few different services, including AWS App Config, Amazon EventBridge, Amazon Kinesis Data Streams, Amazon SQS, and of course, Amazon, I'm oh, sorry, and of course, AWS Step Functions. So this is great. With these new integrations, you can easily create APIs and webhooks for your business logic hosted in these AWS services without having to use uh, VTL, uh, the velocity templating language that you would have had to do before then. Right. So like you mentioned, uh, you could have done this before using HTTP APIs, uh, but you'd have to re uh, route the request to AWS Lambda functions uh, and any HTTP backends that you have. But this release lets you directly uh, connect your APIs to the AWS services that I just mentioned. So you can get information from app config, push events to EventBridge, and just data through Kinesis data streams, send a message to SQS, or start a workflow in step functions, for example. Integration with other AWS services has been a popular feature in the REST APIs product, and we've now made it easier to set up by offering integration with other AWS services as a first-class operation. Over time, we'll continue to improve and migrate features from the REST APIs to the API Gateway's HTTP APIs capability. Now, the second update with API Gateway means that customers can now get deeper insight into how Amazon API Gateway processes requests, thanks to a new access logging set of variables. These new access logging variables let you see a step-by-step -step breakdown of API calls phases. 
the latencies and the status codes that are happening. So beginning today, you can now configure your HTTP, REST, and WebSocket APIs to include new variables in the access logs that'll give you this enhanced observability of how API Gateway is processing your requests. The new access log variables will give you information that you might need to troubleshoot issues with your API's configuration, for example, like checking out the latencies and status codes for each step. Now, you retain full control over the format and destination of the access logs that are generated by API Gateway. Yeah, and look, what I read from this is, you know, it's more logging, which is just fantastic. And this gives you ability to visualize information, more telemetry, you know, push this into your logging platform, you know, whatever that may be, you know, a Kibana dashboard or, you know, a mm -hmm. third party, you know, product here. So Gabe, we generally, every tech chat, give a rough update in CloudFront and the number of edge locations, but don't really spend too much time calling out how our CDN used by millions of customers is being enhanced. And there are some sizable changes that I want to cover here. Now, lots of people run WordPress. It's a popular blogging platform. Yeah, where are you going with this show? This is a show about AWS. Hang on, okay. So look, my blog is on WordPress and the ease of integration with CloudFront either via dedicated plugins or walkthroughs we have is you know, pretty simple. And you know, I covered in the last show with Dean, CloudFront, apart from improving your security posture, is going to save you money by reducing your data transfer out charges at AWS in any region. Now, I mentioned CloudFront as whilst I run my own blog on EC2, our VPS offering, LightSail, makes it really easy to set up many popular CMSs. And LightSail now has a new party trick, the LightSail CDN. Right. Okay. So this native service called LightSail CDN is backed by CloudFront, uh, Amazon Web Services CDN platform that uses a global network of servers in over 200 edge locations across 42 countries to store and deliver your content throughout the world. Now, LightSail CDN, these distributions that you can make with it, you can create them and configure them with just a few clicks for low predictable monthly pricing, and you can get started for free. With LightSail CDN, you can not only accelerate the delivery of your content hosted on LightSail to users all around the world, but easily enable TLS for your custom domains, you know, so you can improve your site's scalability and availability all within the LightSail console. Now, LightSail CDN offers a set of predefined configurations so you can easily optimize your distributions for a variety of applications, you know, including WordPress and static websites. Yeah, I was checking this out and I saw that the wizard will be really smart and notify you if it detects the VPS origin is WordPress uh, or other popular applications and apply the correct caching behavior. So LightSales distributions offer three fixed price data plans, including an intro plan that's free for 12 months, which will let you predict your costs and then pick the right plan based on your needs. Uh, the pricing tiers are $2.50 USD a month for 50 gigabytes, 10 US dollars a month for 200 gigabytes and 35 USD a month for the 500 gigabyte plan. LightSail CDN can be used with LightSail instances and load balancers in any AWS region supported by LightSail. So check out the documentation for more information. The more inputs one has, the better decisions one can make. You know, there are more permutations. And we saw this with step functions before, and this CloudFront update goes along the same lines. Right. So with this new CloudFront update that we we're mentioning here, uh, additional geolocation headers are now available in Amazon CloudFront for you to use a new cache and origin request policies. Let's skip the cache and origin request policies for now. We'll get to them later. Okay. So what this means, though, is that you can now configure CloudFront to add additional geolocation headers that provide much more granularity in your caching and origin request policies. 
Previously, you could configure Amazon CloudFront to provide the viewer's country code in a request header that CloudFront sends to your origin. See the documentation as there are a raft of extra geolocation headers, you know, over 10 here. But just one thing to note that the CloudFront viewer metro code contains a viewer's metro code, and this is only present when the viewer is located in the United States. This is now taking it one step further, you know, more than a country code. And now you can push the following request headers to the origin. So that's the viewer's country name, the region, the city, the postal code, the latitude and longitude, and all based on the viewer's IP address. You know, why would you want to do this? Well, you know, for example, you can pass the postal code header to get fine grain advertisements. Or, you know, if you're using Lambda and Edge, you can use Lambda and Edge origin request functions to pull in local language files and construct and return language-specific HTML page for each country or region, you know, rather than having end users select a language. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. a personal bugbear. Gabe, one of the metrics one uses in caching in general is the concept of hit ratio. You know, this could be caching using in-memory caches all the way through to CDNs and is applicable in CloudFront. And a key to optimizing your cache hit ratio in CloudFront is ensuring you know, you've optimized your cache key. And in order to explain our next update, I think we really need to lay the foundational understanding on cache keys. Now, a cache key is a unique identifier for every object in the cache, and it determines whether a viewer request results in a cache hit. Now, a cache hit occurs when a viewer request, which generates the same cache key as a prior request, and that object for the cache key is found in the edge location and is valid. When there's a cache hit, the object is served to the viewer from a CloudFront Edge location, which has the following benefits by reducing the load on your origin server and reducing the latency for the viewer. Yeah, you can get a better performance from your website or app when you have a higher cache hit ratio. That means that there's a higher proportion of your requests that result in a cache hit. One way to improve your cache hit ratio is to include only the minimum necessary values in the cache key. That way you'll get more matches. So, okay, level setting done. With this update, CloudFront now provides enhanced granular control to configure your headers, query strings, and cookies that can be used to compute the cache key or forward to your origin for your CloudFront distributions. So further, you can configure the cache key and origin request settings independently as account level policies that can be applied across all of your multiple CloudFront distributions. So if we were to rewind prior to this update, Previously, when you configured your distribution behavior to forward request metadata, you know, such as headers, query strings, and cookies, CloudFront would cache separate versions of these objects based on all the unique combinations of this metadata values. You know, lots of permutations here, right? With this new functionality, you don't need to choose between forwarding data to the origin and optimizing cache efficiency by only forwarding the cache key when absolutely needed. So let's keep this real. You know, for example, you know, you could forward everything, but select a specific header or query string parameter to use for varying the cache content, such as using you know, the accept language header to serve localized content variants by clients supported. Okay, so in that example, you're going to increase your cache hit ratio. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so in addition now, these options are now set using policies. A policy allows for the same specific combination of settings to be easily applied across many different distribution behaviors, which will save you setup time and complexity, uh, allowing you to manage consistency across your configs. CloudFront also provides several system policies for you that are pre-configured just to make your life even easier. Yeah, absolutely, Gabe. So these default policies are a great starting point to which you can tweak. You know, they're going to include default policies for maximum caching and retention. So, you know, max TTLs, compression. Um, policies appropriate for proxying dynamic transactions, you know, in theory, disabling caching and more. So if you're a CloudFront user, 
This feature is something worth getting your head around as these levers to which you can pull will increase the effectiveness of your distribution. Gabe, I think we have time for one more update and I hear Glue, you know, AWS Glue has undergone some significant changes. Yeah, Glue is super cool. It's a, it's a service that I think a lot of people haven't necessarily looked at, but totally should. And now it's at version 2.0 and there's some really sizable changes. We're talking functionality, cost, and speed. But if you're a new listener or you're just not familiar with Glue, let me just level set for you. AWS Glue is a fully managed ETL service, that's extract, transform, and load, that you can use to prepare and load data for analytics. Uh, you can also basically run serverless uh, Spark queries, for example. It's easy to use. You can create and run an ETL job with just a few clicks on the console. The first thing you need to do is point Glue to your data, right? So it, it has, uh, basically, it operates like a Hive meta store. It can uh, crawl your data and then basically build virtual tables about that data that you can then point your ETL jobs at. So you point Glue to your data stored on AWS, and AWS Glue will then discover your data and store that metadata, like the table definitions and schema, in the AWS Glue data catalog. And once it's cataloged, your data is immediately searchable, queryable, and available for ETL in Glue. And also, I believe, uh, in Athena, right? Athena can also use the Glue's data catalog for, for doing its ad hoc query. Yeah, it can. Cool. All right, on to the changelog. Now, with Glue version 2.0, uh, it now lets you provide additional Python modules or different versions at the job level. Uh, just a quick aside, you write your Glue ETL jobs using Python or Scala. Those are the languages it supports. So now uh, you can use the additional Python modules option with a list of comma-separated Python modules to add new modules or change the versions of an existing module uh, for your ETL jobs. And this is a pretty big deal because it lets you customize your Glue jobs with modules for unique cases. For example, uh, if you want to update or add a new uh, scikit-learn module, uh, then you could say, you know, dash dash additional dash python dash modules, you know, and then pass a scikit-learn version like, you know, 0.21.3, for example. Yeah, and what I like, it just uses pip3, which is common to most users. You know, you can pass additional options specified by the python-modules-installer-option to pip3 for installing the modules. Any incompatibility or limitations from pip3 will apply, but there are also 30 or so modules supported out of the box from Bodo through to PySQL and NumPy. That's right, and those are all super helpful for a lot of your common you know, ETL cases that you're going to be running in Python. Now, another update. Logging in Glue version 2.0 is real-time, which is great. It's a great win. Uh, and there's separate streams for drivers and the executor. Uh, and with each driver and executor, there's two streams, an output stream and an airstream. Yeah, look, just on this, there's a bit of a gotcha to call out. So continuous logging requires you create the log groups before using the continuous logging feature. So to work around this issue, you know, just create the default logging groups or customer log groups specified by the hyphen hyphen continuous hyphen log hyphen log group. Otherwise, the continuous log streams will not show up. Now, our service team is aware of this and is working to address this issue. I think, though, talking about the biggest win here has to be cost. You know, I've heard firsthand from customers here some feedback. You know, like Glue V2, jobs are going to be billed in one-second increments with a one-minute minimum rather than a 10-minute minimum. So this is huge here. So if your job runs for two minutes, you're going to pay for up to three minutes rather than 10. Yeah, I agree. It's such a big win, uh, and I'm really glad to see this change roll out for customers. Uh, and also, related to cost, right, because your cost is going to be based on how long the job runs, is speed. Speed is really important. Uh, and with Glue 2.0, job startup times can be a lot faster and more consistent. Uh, we're seeing 
uh, up to job starting up to 10 times faster, for example. So Shane, Glue 2.0, cheaper, faster, more flexible. That's the bottom line here. If you're out there and you're using Glue V1 today, you definitely want to take a look at and probably migrate to V2 if you can. Uh, and if you're considering using Glue for some form of ETL and you haven't in the past, you should definitely look at it now with this update. Well, that's it for today, Gabe. You know, lots of updates covered. Um, you know, we covered a lot of things here, but, you know, let's just face it, there are so many updates in AWS Cloud. We covered a plethora of topics today. You know, we started with containers as we spoke about ACK or the AWS controller for Kubernetes, which means you can leverage AWS services directly in your Kubernetes applications without needing to define resources outside of a cluster or to run services that provide supporting capabilities like, you know, databases, queues, etc. EKS now supports UDP load balancing with the NLB, the Network Load Balancer. And also sticking with EKS, it is now included in Compute Savings Plans too. Hooray. Yeah, huge win for customers there, Gabe. Yep. And uh, still sticking with containers, ECS now has launched the new Amazon ECS optimized Inferentia Amazon machine image, making it easier for our customers to run those Inferentia-based containers on ECS. The AMI comes pre-baked with all the necessary AWS Neuron packages as well. ComputeWise Inferentia, to which you just spoke about, is now available in additional regions. And EC2 launch is now at V2 with a range of new features. I particularly like you can rename the administrator account. <laughs> Graviton 2 based instances make their way to a heap more regions. That's super awesome. And they now can be consumed by EKS. And sticking with EKS, with Fargate, it can now mount EFS-based file systems. Yeah, that's an awesome update. Uh, Amazon Bracket, generally available, as we mentioned, which is that development environment for you to explore and build quantum algorithms, test them on quantum circuit simulators, and then actually run them on a plethora of different quantum hardware technology platforms. Uh, we also talked about the new EBS storage class, IO2, which kind of fits in between IO1 and GP2-based volumes. Remember, it has five nines of durability and up to 64,000 IOPS per volume. On the development front, we talked about step functions, adding support for string manipulation, new comparison operators, and improved output processing. And API Gateway HTTP APIs added support with five new AWS service integrations directly, meaning you no longer need to proxy through code, as well as API Gateway supporting enhanced observability via access logs. LightSail has a CDN, which is backed by CloudFront. It offers three fixed-price data plans, including an introductory plan that's free for 12 months. CloudFront adds geolocation headers for more fine-grained geotagging, as well as a cache key and origin request policies, providing more options to control and configure headers, query strings, and cookies that can be used to compute the cache key or forward to your origin. Yeah, and lastly, I talked about AWS Glue version 2.0 with some sizable changes around functionality, cost, and speed. Lots of updates there, Gabe, and it was great to have you back on the show. Thank you, Shane. It's great to be back on the show. I hope we can do it again sooner than another nine months, so uh, let me know. I hope so. All right, listeners, keep the feedback coming. Drop us an email at awstechchat at amazon.com as your messages do drive a direction of the show. Join us again next time on a deep dive episode of your choosing. But until next time, bye for now. Thanks for listening, everyone. Signing off, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting awstechchat.com. <laughs>